Well, we're thankful for music, aren't we? We're thankful for how it prepares our hearts to receive the word. We're thankful for the instruction that it gives. We're thankful for the opportunity to be encouraged in the faith. And uh, today I want to talk to you about the gospel in particular. And I want to talk to you about how that interacts with our everyday existence in life. And this sermon won't be a typical thing for me. Usually I like to stay in one text and stay in that spot. I'm going to jump around a bunch, so you'll try to stick with me if you dare. Uh, But uh, as we attempt to do this, please bow with me in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, it is my desire to magnify you with the opening of your word. We pray, Father, that you would assist us in magnifying you. We have become aware of who we are because of your word. We become aware of who you are and the glory of Christ and the wonder that we are called into relationship with you through the work of Christ on our behalf. Lord, may that message be clear. May it resound as clearly, as loudly as our singing. May we reflect these things in our lives. May we extol you with our actions, not just our words. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As a new believer... Back in 1998, I started going to a uh, little church in West Virginia, and um, as the pastor week after week would preach his sermon, in the last 20 minutes of every sermon was a presentation of the gospel, and he did this for a while, and it went into the, the year 1999, and I listened to him do it again, and he kept doing it, and this guy was in his, I mean, he was ancient. You know, I was 21, and uh, I'm listening to him, and I was thinking, you know, this guy's got to be as, as old as, you know, 80, so he was, you know, super old to me. And listening to him week after week going through the gospel, I was like, okay, can we get to it? And I was missing something important. Now, I'm not saying that one, in order to preach the truth and, and preach the word, needs to give a 20-minute gospel presentation every time. But to ever become familiar with the gospel, to ever become used to it, the same way we get used to everything else in life, is a tragedy. It's a tragedy that affects us, and I think the key to actually growing up as a Christian, that the key to maturing as a believer is to never move away from that home base. The only way you ever really grow is by staying connected back to that gospel that saved you. If you ever get to a point where you were like I was, thinking you'd kind of graduated from that, then you're in a dangerous place. Because I, um, I look back at those days and I think, man, I, I wasn't really listening to what this gentleman was saying. I thought it was something he tacked on at the end because he ran out of material. I don't think that's what it was. Because I got to know that pastor a little bit. And I found that he was a man who had a tremendous devotion to the Lord. 
And I don't think he ever got used to the gospel. Uh, All those saints who have gone before us who have truly spoken in their time and place spoke of the gospel constantly. It never became a sidebar. It never became a tack on at the end. It was the mechanism. It's the engine that propelled their growth in Christ. And I would say many times, probably all the time, when you find that you are stagnant in your faith, when you find that you're no longer really progressing, you'll find that your, your devotion, your encouragement from the gospel is probably gone. The joy of salvation is gone because that gospel no longer amazes you. Now, we live in a, in a pretty wild time, don't we? I mean, consider the room we're gathered in or your own home or the car you drove here in or the, the computer you hold in your pocket. It's also called a phone. I was talking to one of my boys the other day and we were discussing the telephone and I, he said, you know, I don't think they can do anything else with the phone. I said, yeah, in 2005, we didn't think you could do anything else with the phone either, Right? I mean, who knew we would be jamming computers into phones like this? I mean, one of my boys was learning the other day that everything you have in your pocket with that smartphone is more computing power than they had when they went to the moon. And you got it in your pocket. These were computers that took up rooms. There are so many amazing, so many incredible things happening right now that we've become utterly familiar with. We get familiar with even wonderful things in our daily lives that are, that are blessings. This morning on my phone, speaking of the phone, the random picture came up. Yeah, I don't know if you get that, but mine, like every day, I'll have this, I got this little widget on the side, and it shows a random picture of the day. And it was a picture from 2016. And Priscilla and I were out in Ice Deli Place with Kurt and Kim Fleck with our kids, and you see all our little McNuggets, you know? And 2016 doesn't sound that long ago, right? I mean, for some of you, if you're young, you're like, oh, that was before I was born or whatever. But, but for most of us, 2016 feels like, wasn't that just like right before the pandemic? I mean, just like a blink ago. And you look at these pictures, and my son, who's about the same height as me now, was like, yay. Right? And the other one, who's like the same height, who's sitting over there, is like, yay. And you're like, this is incredible. We just assume that things are supposed to go that way, that our kids are supposed to be healthy, that they're not supposed to die, that we're supposed to continue, that we're not supposed to have cancer. That we're, all these things, we get familiar with miracles every day. And the tragedy of that for us who walk with Christ is we get familiar with the gospel. It's one thing to get familiar with raindrops and rainbows, with snowflakes and other things. It's an entirely different situation when you have allowed your heart to go cold toward the gospel to which you were saved. So let me try to kindle a bit of a fire, if you'll go with me, back to Exodus chapter 33. It's interesting how often when we are asked or when we ponder who is God, that we don't turn back to this particular 
text, Exodus 33. Exodus 33, and Moses here is going to interact with God. He has seen so much of Yahweh. He has seen his power, his wonder, his work in his own life, and yet it's not enough. He says, uh, if you come now to verse, let's see, where do I want to start? Let's go down to verse 18. Verse 17, excuse me. The Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing of which you have spoken for. You have found favor in my sight and I have known you by name. Now pause on that for a second. This is actually is just extra stuff. This wasn't what I was planning on going on. But think about that particular statement that God says to Moses. You have found favor in my sight and I have known you by name. Moses' response to that, verse 18, I pray you, show me your glory. He's tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but he wants more. The Lord responds, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name, the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show Compassion. Interesting that whenever the Lord really shows forth who he is, it's always with a message. It's always with words. It's always with declaration of who he is and his character. It's startling to me many of the visions and the books and so on and so forth that people have had that they've gone to heaven, they've seen God and all this stuff, and it's all about their emotions and this kind of ooey-gooeyness. You don't hear this kind of stuff about their revelation of what they've seen. God gives a very straightforward declaration there. You know, look, I'm, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. I'm going to proclaim my name before you. And then he says this, I'll, I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show compassion to whom I will show compassion. Adding some meat to the bones of what he says when he proclaims that he is the I am. I am who I am. I am that I am. I will do as I see fit. He furthermore says in verse 20, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. That's a bit more reality than any of us can imagine. I can't imagine anything that powerful. Anyone that powerful. That if he were to truly show forth who he is in all of his radiance and glory, you would be consumed. Now think about yourself. If you dare. If you are looking in a mirror at a distance. If the light is dim, I look pretty good. You know, I walk in the bathroom this morning. It's like five. I walk in. The lights are off. <laughs> There's a night light in the bathroom I'm seeing a bit of a glow. I'm like, oh, I look pretty good today. Then you turn the lights on. You're like, ooh, need a little help, right? And they're like, I think I got something on my face. And you move a little closer, and you start to see pores. Anybody want that particular joy? You know, the closer you get to a person, the less amazed you will be if you truly know their heart. 
amazing. But the closer you get to God, it's the exact opposite. Isn't that a remarkable reality? The closer you draw, the, the nearer you get, the more you will stand amazed, or you didn't actually come to know him. Incredible. That is the nature of God. This is the glory of future. This is the glory of heaven. You will never become bored of heaven because heaven, more than anything, is this, this proximity to God. You're coming closer to God. Never to be bored. He is all-consuming, as he proclaims in Hebrews. He is a consuming fire. Now, you are probably familiar with what happens after this. Now, Moses gets a glimpse of the back of the glory of God. He cannot see his face or he will be consumed. He will die. Moses goes through and he cuts these stones and he got, he's hid in the cleft of the rock. You come down to verse 5 of chapter 34. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, with Moses, as he called, as Moses called upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed again. Any vision of God will be a proclamation of who he is. And remember, so often when someone were to ask you, who is God, what is he like, let God declare who he is. Don't come up with your own definition. Don't break the Ten Commandments here and come up with your own God and prop up your own, well, my God wouldn't do that. Well, I don't care about your God because he's fake. He's you. He's some figment of your imagination. Who does God say he is? Chapter 34, verse 6. In proclaiming, he says this, The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. We stop here. We stop here. Most of the time in our presentation of who God is. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Really. If you stop there, maybe you can get away with that. Maybe you can present one side of this. You can present grace and you can present love and you leave out justice and you leave out holiness and you present your own concocted version of who God is because that's not where God stops in proclaiming his name, his character, his essence. Yet, as you keep reading verse 7, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And we are thrilled to read that. But notice, if you don't come to him for that forgiveness, he will yet by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So what am I guilty of? That becomes the proclamation from the rebellious heart. What have I done wrong? What did I ever do? You know what? I, I don't really think I've done all that much wrong. Now, as a brand new believer, you don't feel that way, do you? 
The gospel first, you first hear this and, and you start hearing of the gospel message and you, you respond. You react. You feel convicted. You feel small. You feel you need forgiveness. And that hits home. But as a, a believer who's walked with God for a while, whose heart has grown cold, now you start to forget all the sin that you have tolerated. And the closer you get to him, the more you start to realize just how guilty you are. This is random Examples here of this, Romans chapter 3, if you'll turn over there for just a moment. Romans 3.10. Don't need to read much here to make the point, there is none righteous. Yeah, but what about me? Not even one. Right? There's none righteous. Yeah, but I'm kind of a good guy. No, not even one. And this same truth is proclaimed back in Ecclesiastes as well. And actually it's proclaimed throughout Scripture. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. None who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Jim prayed about this in his prayer here this morning. All of us in our own manner and own custom have gone off on our own route thinking that we were going to find the way. It's exactly what Solomon attempted to accomplish in Ecclesiastes. If you've never read it, you need to because he chases down all the rabbit trails that people think maybe this will work. Maybe this will satisfy. That should work. What about this thing? And on and on he goes and he says they're all dead end roads. Every one of them. Go ahead and try it and you'll find that your, your life is shipwrecked. That's his point there. None who seeks for God all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. How's that for your self-esteem? How does that jive with it? It doesn't. We are constantly being fed a different vision of life, of, of humanity, of all things. We're constantly being fed what the world thinks. And by its conniving nature, it finds a way to weasel in all kinds of different views of who we truly are. Before God, how useful are your best deeds? The best thing you've ever done. The nicest thing you ever did. Helping that little lady cross the street. You know, I don't know what it is. The purest act you ever think that you performed. In God's eyes, he says, what of that? Isaiah. 66, what does he tell us? It is as presenting a bloody rag. Look how clean and righteous this action is. And God says, that is a bloody, filthy rag. Why are you bringing that to me? Because that action was surrounded and covered in selfish motivation that you couldn't even see. You didn't perceive it because you are not walking in the holiness and the righteousness of the impossibly holy God to see things as they truly are. You're seeing it through your own eyes, and therefore you're innocent. All you have to do to know this is to argue with somebody. They're right, and you're wrong. Or, flip that over, you're right, and they're wrong. Takes a lot to convince us otherwise. Our greatest deeds are not things that God's like, eh, if I dust it off a little, 
All right, we can add that on the good scale. Your best deed is a filthy rag that you're trying to proclaim. Look how clean and holy this is. Best deed. Useless. There is none who does good. And the, the question I write in my Bible right after that, my little margin there is, by what standard do you define good? On your human standard, in your own brain, yes, you think you do good. Compare it to God. That's the standard. Not me. Not the guy across the street. Not anyone else around you. God. Which takes me to my next passage. What am I actually guilty of? Well, if you go through the Sermon on the Mount, that even guys like Gandhi said, oh, that proclaims Jesus more than any other place in the Bible, and all that kind of stuff. Even the liberals will, will jive with the, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. So what does Jesus say there? By the end of chapter 5, after proclaiming all the ways that we actually don't do what we ought to do, we think we're fine because we've never murdered anyone, but Jesus destroys that whole argument. In chapter 5, he points out, look, if you've even said your brother's an idiot, then you're guilty. So that puts you in trouble. What does Jesus say by the end of that chapter? This sermon that people think is so great that they're willing to concede is, is a wonderful sermon. He says you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. Not perfect, again, by a human standard. You've probably met a few people in your life who are like better than you at like everything. You know, it doesn't matter what you try your hand at. They seem to excel at it. Way, they go way, way on past you. And you're like, I don't understand. You're just like lived a charmed life, man. Well, how you pull that off? No, it's not that standard. You shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, when I read just Romans 3 and I just think of the Sermon on the Mount, I start to realize how guilty I am. And here's another fun one in case you, you don't feel like you're squirming yet. How about just the simple injunction in Ephesians chapter 5? Husbands, love your wives. I love my wife. She's a lovely lady. I, I absolutely adore Priscilla. I love her so much more now than when we first got married. Whoop-de-doo. That's not the standard. You've got to keep reading. Husbands, love your wives as... Can anybody finish it? Christ loved the church. Whoops. Any of you really think you're passing that bar? If you do, go read some gospel. If you truly think that, you don't know Jesus very well. So honestly, this is what I could say. As a person walking with Christ, trying to stay familiar with the word, trying to stay in the word, trying to abide in scripture, there's like hardly any place I can turn to in scripture where I don't feel convicted of sin on some level. It's all over the place. How do you pass through the prophets? How do you read through that and feel like, yeah, I'm doing good? How do you read through, I'm going through Exodus some with our, our Bible training institute hour. As I go through that, I see so much of me in what Israel's doing. Don't you? 
And on and on, I don't know of a place in Scripture where I can't feel the conviction, the weight of sin. And so I would say, along with Isaiah, woe is me, I'm, I'm undone. I've got no recourse. And I resonate with what Paul says in Romans 5, wretched man that I am. Who? Who? Who can set me free from the body of this death? Doesn't that strike a chord in you when you read through Romans 7? You're marching through that, that text that I, the good I want to do, I don't do? You know, that which I know to be right, I can't seem to get to it. And that pull, that tug, is in the soul of every person who is at war with God and unwilling to come to the Prince of Peace for the peace that he offers. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free? And you keep reading that verse. Christ. Christ Jesus the Lord. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, including yours. Behold the Lamb. See, we don't graduate from the gospel because hopefully as you read through your Bible on a regular basis, you feel the weight of sin. And you feel the glory of Christ again. You know, I, I talk to my kids about this a lot when we're going through discipline, right? And you remind them that they're struggling with, you know, what's going on. And you're like, listen, child, this is why we love Christ so much. Right here. Because he pays for the, Christ is righteous, altogether pure, holy, and lovely. And as I fail, as I sin, I'm reminded that I am a wretched man that needs Christ again. Not that I'm becoming saved again, but I'm returning to the glory of the gospel all over again, it seems. Who will set me free? Christ. The Bible, all the Bible, all of human history builds to the apex of beholding the Lamb. Whether it was before Christ leading up to the cross or whether it's after looking back, everything builds to that apex. Everything builds to beholding the Lamb. The apex question that comes to the page, that comes to the mind of anyone who's, who's been feeling convicted of their sin and knows the holiness of God would be something like this. What, what is God going to do with us poor sinners? What's he going to do? Is he just going to kill us all? How in the world, how is it possible that he will make a way? Because with man it is certainly impossible. I cannot navigate the course. How will God make a way? As Job says, who can make the clean out of the unclean? His answer, no one. No one. With men, this is impossible. There is no way from me to him. There's no way to bridge that gap. There's no opportunity. And how can God make anyone, especially me, righteous and maintain his own righteousness? How will he be 
just and the justifier. How can he do this? Jesus. Jesus is the answer. John chapter 1 proclaims him, presents him, puts him in front of you in such glorious terms. Colossians 1 extols him, reminds us that all things hold together by the word of his power. Everything was made through him and for him and by him. Hebrews chapter 1 elevates him. Hebrews, the book, elevates him. Tells us there's nothing and no one like him. So the gospel and and this presentation of, of the Lamb is all over Scripture. So we cannot become used to the gospel because it is everywhere in it. Just listen to Paul's opening greeting. Grace and peace to you. That's every, you know, that's just such a common thing. It's, it's such a throwaway type of statement in our brains that we read it and we, we you know, just peruse on past it like a Sunday drive and act like it's, it's not a big deal. Grace and peace to you. Do you ever think of the significance of that? What is the mechanism? What is the avenue of grace to us? Christ Jesus. How is it that we can even know peace? Because of the Prince of Peace. That's a important little statement that he makes grace and peace to you from God our father in through Christ Jesus Hebrews as i said elevates him Colossians extols him John proclaims him but how do i know all that's great but how do i know he can redeem me isn't that a lot of where the question goes in our minds. How do I know that he can actually redeem me? By what power can he do that? The resurrection. Have you ever consider the tremendous significance of the resurrection? We're, we're marching through 1 Corinthians right now on Sunday mornings, typically. My dad preaching through that. We're about to get to chapter 15. He's going to get into that, so I won't spend too much time here, but do you consider the power of the resurrection? Do you consider everything that Jesus put at the feet of the resurrection? Everything he ever said and did hinged upon the absurd, audacious claim that I'm going to die and come back. There's nothing like this. What person says, look, I'll authenticate my message after I die and I'm going to come right back. I will rise from the dead. And then you'll know everything I said was legitimate. Then you'll have no question. No, he wouldn't do it like that. No other religion has anything like this. We have an empty tomb. Muhammad does not. Buddha does not. These other would-be gods and other leaders and whatnot, they do not have the empty tomb. They do not have the resurrection that authenticates everything he said and everything he did. We become familiar with the absurdity, really, of the resurrection. We forget that Jesus actually did that. 
and that it was the bomb, the explosion that went off that changed the world. It wasn't just that Jesus went around and and proclaimed the message and then he performed miracles. It was the resurrection that was used to change, to transform the, the apostles. They went from cowering wimps and loudmouths, if you're Peter, shooting off and it, it, proclaiming you're going to be a big deal and all that. It transformed them into, look at Peter, look at the change. You get to Acts chapter 2 and look what happens. He stands up in front of a crowd of people that murdered Jesus. He was so scared he denied he even knew him three times. And within a, a matter of days, he's out there in, that, in front of that same crowd of people knowing full well they could kill him, and now he's not running. He's doing anything but running. He actually puts the blame for the crucifixion directly on them. You killed him, he says to them. The resurrection was the mechanism that changed the world. That message went out into Judea, Samaria, the whole Roman Empire. By the time you get to the 60s of the first century, there are so many Christians, they don't actually, we actually don't know the number in the Roman Empire at that point. Why? Because they learned the message of a resurrected Savior. He did wonderful things. He, he proclaimed a wonderful message. And he proved it. He wasn't just a big talker. Aren't you done with the big talkers? Good grief. I mean, I, I don't know how anybody trusts politicians, just in general. There's so much yapping, so much bragging, so much I'm going to do this and that and the other, and so many big talkers in our world. If you dare get on Twitter, good grief. Jesus wasn't a big talker. He proclaimed, and then he did it. He authenticated it. And it is not just a, a statement. It's not a, a mythological thing. It's not some spiritual resurrection or something like that. It was authenticated. It's a historical fact. Everything Jesus did hung in the balance on that claim that he was going to rise from the dead. How is it that I know he can redeem me? Because he said he would. And every word he has said, he fulfills. And he authenticated that message for the world to see with the resurrection. Not only that, but he proclaims to us in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. If you want to turn over there to John chapter 11 for just a moment, I want to look at that. I want to look at this because I want you to be reminded of the power of what is happening here. This is when Lazarus had died. He was in the grave four days. There would have been, as Martha protests slightly, there would have been a stench from the rotting of his flesh. And Jesus says, watch what I'm going to do. 
John chapter 11. If you come down to, oh, let's go to verse 20. Martha, therefore, when she had heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, and, but Mary stayed at the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died because Martha doesn't get something yet. Now, I don't want to down on Martha. Martha's fantastic. So her proclamations of Christ are somewhat unparalleled. So I don't want to dog on her, but notice what goes on further. Verse 22, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Comforting words that she fails to see the true significance of here. Martha has good theology and she says to him in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's She's got some good theology. She understands what's going on. She understands the power of God. She doesn't doubt that. She doesn't understand who's truly in front of her, though. Jesus, as she says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. You can stop there for a moment and think that through. Look, you're, you're looking to a future event and you're failing to see, I am the resurrection. I hold that in my power. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. How do I know that God can redeem me? Because he is the resurrection. He is the life. And it's been proved. Historically, biblically, it's been proved, authenticated by eyewitnesses, by the, the Spirit, and in our own lives. He says in verse 26 further, And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Her answer, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So we move from the, the splendor of the, the almighty God to the corrosive nature, the corrupted nature of humanity, to the wonder of beholding a lamb. Now what is the response? Do you believe this? Acts chapter 2. If you turn over there for a moment. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. I was just proclaiming of, of Peter just a moment ago. Now let's look in a little bit more detail. Summing up his sermon. He comes to verse 36. And he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Notice that personal pronoun in there. He drives right to them. And when I read that, I realize as I've passed through Scripture, I realize that it wasn't just them that he's pointing at, that particular crowd that day that crucified him. I was part of that. My sin nailed him there. This Jesus whom you 
Brian had a hand in crucifying. Verse 37. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Now what? Yes, we did that. Yes, I'm guilty. Yes, I understand the holiness of God. Now what? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, which was read this morning. If you turn over there. First Peter chapter 2. I just want to read one verse here. Verse 24. And he himself, Christ Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that for the purpose of that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. What's the response? Live to righteousness. Die to sin. Live to righteousness. As I said, what does the gospel have to do with everyday living? Man, it's got everything to do with it. It connects every day. I wake up selfish, self-centered, me kingdom-oriented. I wake up thinking about my life, my problems. And I need the conviction of the word again as I, as I pass through it. This is why morning devotions are incredibly good for you. As you start walking through the word in your own selfish mindset, you, you wash over that nonsense. You're reminded of your sin. You're reminded of, of God and who he is. You're reminded that the only reason that you have any righteousness is not of your own derived from the law, but that which is by faith. And you're reminded once again to repent of the selfishness and, and the, the ways in which you are willing to live. I want to die to sin daily. I want to kill sin because I know if I don't, it will be killing me. Its desire is to master me, but I must master it. I know that the devil himself is roaming about like a lion seeking those he may devour, and he doesn't pick off the strong in the height of their strength. He waits for your weakness. I also know that, the, that my members within me wage a war with me. So what is my response to the gospel on a daily basis? To go back to simple texts like this that are all over the place. Just pick this one somewhat at, at random from what was in my brain, from what I know, from my response, my needed response to the gospel. And then I also always think of Hebrews. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. If I'm really going to grow, if I'm really going to, to change and be more conformed to the image of his son, it's not going to be by looking at the culture, which will make me despair. It's not going to be by looking within like so many self-help gurus are telling us and other religions are telling us. To look within is to find depression. But the hope is to look to Christ, as he says in verse 2 of Hebrews 12, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Where should your attention be? Where should I, I 
put my effort, my focus on Christ. Get in the Gospels. Become familiar, incredibly familiar with Jesus Christ. Know him. And as Paul says about knowing him, he would count everything else as dung, as trash by comparison. We have this goofy thing that goes through our brains because of cultural training that the great adventures are out there and traveling. They're out there and having some grand experience. Join the military, see the world, or some other garbage like that. The grand adventure is not in going somewhere or knowing someone cool. The grand adventure is in knowing Christ. There's no greater thing than that. Everything, everywhere you go will just end up becoming a postcard anyway. If you think traveling somewhere is cool, go there and stay there long enough and it becomes redundant to you. Because as I said, the closer you get to these things in life, the closer you get to your own face in the mirror, the more you realize the problems. Costa Rica seems cool until you live there long enough and you start to see what's really going on. And you get outside of tourist areas. We're on our honeymoon forever ago. 20 years ago almost, we go down to the Bahamas. And it was really cool where we stopped with the boat, you know, and it wasn't a ship because it was really small. But anyway, we, we stopped at a port and got off and you traveled around the town and then Priscilla and I actually went out of the touristy area. It was a dump. And that's much of life. And you have to believe that. You have to believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. But the lie that gets in our head is if I travel somewhere, if I go to the right school, if I get the right job, that kind of stuff, that somehow life will become, you know, magnanimous and glorious. No, it won't. How many people have you seen try that and utterly fail? People get to the apex of life, the grand experiences, and they find that it fails them. How many times do we have to learn that before we will come to the Savior and say, wretched man that I am, who will set me free? Christ, and knowing him, he will bring living waters. He will. I need that message daily. I need that message. I need that reminder to wash over my stupid, selfish mind so that I can live by the Spirit and not carry out the deeds of the flesh, so I might walk in the Spirit and newness of life. I need the gospel daily. Let me pray. Our Father, I thank you for a chance to talk about what is so heavy upon my heart, the need to grow, to change, to be conformed to the image of your Son that we might magnify you. Lord, we want to make much of you in this life. We want to proclaim you. Assist us to proclaim We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.